Hi, this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's episode, we're talking to Adam Schatz. He's the uh, U.S. editor for the London Review of Books, a contributor to the New York Review of Books, a frequent uh, essayist, and the author of the brand new book, The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon, um, which is uh, just coming out this week. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much, Mark. So before we get started um, talking about Franz Fanon and the new book, I just wanted to contextualize the conversation a little bit. Um, you know, so I, I teach uh, in my uh, MA program, I teach a scope and methods class. And one of the essays that I include in the very first week is something you wrote quite a while ago called Writers and Missionaries, which uh, just last year you you turned into the, the anchor of a new collection of essays that, that just appeared. And my students have always related very well to that in terms of your own reflections on your own positionality and how you approach topics like the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, Algeria, and the like. Before we talk about Fanon, could you talk a little bit about your intellectual trajectory and maybe uh, maybe using that as an anchor? Sure. Um, I come from uh, a secular, left liberal uh, Jewish family on the East Coast. I grew up in Western Massachusetts. Um, I became politicized um, when I was in my teens. Um, the issues that I was engaged in had to do with uh, American intervention in Central America. I took part in demonstrations against U.S. intervention in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Um, I was also drawn to the anti-apartheid struggle. And when I was 15 years old, uh, the Intifada broke out and the Intifada raised a lot of questions for me because although I was not raised in what you would call a Zionist household, there were still some, you might say, lazy assumptions about Israel as this uh, sanctuary for uh, the Jewish people and 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 not much understanding about uh, the indigenous people of Palestine and their claims to the land. And so I began to I, I, that launched me on a quest to kind of understand what were the issues at, at stake in 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 Israel Palestine, and I discovered writers like Edward Said and Avi Shlaim and Simcha Flapan and and eventually Tom Segev and Rashid Khalidi and so and so and so forth, and that really kind of jolted me, and I think that um, sort of launched me. Um, on my path when I was in my late teens and early 20s. I studied at Columbia University. I became quite close to a number of students from the Arab world, both in the Middle East and North Africa. And I uh, was reading writers like I.F. Stone and Isaac Deutscher and um, discovering that there had been this non and anti-Zionist tradition on the, on the among uh, Jewish leftists, Marxists, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, as well as cultural Zionists like Ahad Ham and Judah Magnus. And so, uh, you know, an, an intellectual world opened up to me. And at the same time, I was very interested in Western Marxism and the ideas that were being explored in magazines like New Left Review, where thinkers like Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn were mm -hmm. uh, developing a very uh, sophisticated approach to Marxist thought, drawing upon writers like Gramsci and Althusser. And then, of course, there was French theory. I was very excited by French theory. It was it was alluring. It was enigmatic. I I eventually had to uh, 
purge my own language of the abstruseness of French theory, but I was certainly influenced by it and, and in some ways continue to be influenced by it, even though I've taken some distance from its more, you know, from its, from its more, right. less plausible claims. So that was really the kind of bouillabaisse that I was, um, that I was drinking from when I was uh, in my late teens and, and early twenties. It was uh, Israel, Palestine, eventually uh, the politics of the larger Middle East, Western Marxism, French theory. That, that was where I started out. Well, what makes the, that collection of essays and that particular essay so compelling, I think, is the encounter between the theory that you're bringing, what you expect to see in the Middle East versus what you're actually encountering as you begin interviewing people, spending time there and kind of learning the complexities of what's actually happening around you. And I think that that moment of humility during the research process is one that I think spans the journalism to academia, or it should at least um, span that divide. I, I, no, I agree. I mean, that was, a, a, I guess, a baptismal moment for me, actually spending time uh, in the region, because I wasn't from a family that 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 went to Israel, that that visited the kibbutz, for example. I mean, my parents have never been to Israel. We don't have that connection um, in the family, uh, generally speaking. Um, I mean, oddly enough, I have a, a great uncle who uh, published uh, a kind of Zionist mythology about 1948 called uh, the Pledge. It's a very it's it's a very peculiar detail in my in my in my family's uh, uh, biography. But, but we didn't in my family. And so uh, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s uh, that I visited the Middle East. And my first trip was to, uh, was to Beirut. It was not to Israel, it was to Beirut. Um, and uh, among the places that I visited when I was in Beirut in, I believe it was 2001 or 2002, uh, was the Sabran Shatila refugee camp where I spoke with survivors. And that had a a considerable impression on me. And then it was later that I spent time in Algeria and eventually went to Palestine and, and Israel. Um, uh, but that wasn't for a little while. And, mm -hmm. and yes, um, there is something um, humility inducing about going to a place that you've read about, that you imagine that you know, and, um, and you discover that uh, uh, there is a difference between um, uh, erudition or the erudition that you've acquired through reading books and the, um, you know, the complexities and richness of empirical reality. Yeah, for sure. And with that, as a, maybe let's use that as a pivot and maybe we can talk about uh, about Franz Fanon. So, you know, as you know, and I think as many of our listeners know, there's been something of a, of a revival in Fanon studies in uh, political science um, and in political theory and kind of across the disciplines in recent years. What attracted you to Fanon as a, as a topic uh, to write a biography and an intellectual biography? Well, you know, my attraction to Fanon goes back many years, in fact. My father um, had a copy of um, Black Skin, White Masks in the original Grove edition um, in his uh, basement library. And I think, and I, as I recall, it was, I think it was sandwiched in between uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, also in the original Grove edition, and Isaac Deutscher's Non-Jewish Jew. Uh, those books also had a great impact on me. 
Um, he also had an old paperback of The Wretched of the Earth. But I remember when I was in my teens, I saw that photograph of Fanon on the back cover of Black Skin, White Masks. And then I read the biography on the jacket about this West Indian man, this West Indian doctor who somehow had ended up aiding the rebels in Algeria. And there was something about that story um, that I found riveting. Why would a, a man from Martinique go all the way to North Africa and become involved in a revolution that was not quote unquote his own? Mm -hmm. I mean, today that seems even more fantastical because of some of our notions about staying in your lane and you know working with your own so-called group. And, and Fanon had no interest in occupying any lane. I mean, his his you know he was a citizen of the world. Um, so that story gripped me. And then I began to, to read Fanon's work when I was, uh, when I was in college, um, while I was studying uh, 20th century French thought. And uh, what, um, what I found, um, you know, what I found fascinating about Fanon was the way in which he engaged with and challenged some of the leading French thinkers of his era. I mean, here you have a 27 year old man who is an unknown um, throwing the gauntlet to the world's most famous philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, that takes a lot of chutzpah, you know? And he's not only challenging him, but he's, he's arguing that, in fact, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's understanding of identity could benefit from his own, you know? I mean, it, was, uh, it, it really took a lot of guts. And so there was something about Fanon's work and his arresting formulations, his language, that um, that really uh, got to me when I was in my 20s. And then a number of years later, um, I think it was 2001, it was just before the September 11 attacks. I think it was a week before I published a review of David Macy's biography mm. of Franz Fanon in the New York Times. And I'll tell you an anecdote that has stayed with me ever since, which is that my editor at the New York Times Book Review called me and said, <clears throat> we're happy with your review, but there's one thing we're going to have to change. Um, you, um, you write that um, a page of Fanon um, will tell you more about the struggle in Palestine than, you know, a year's worth of, uh, a year's worth of op-eds. That was the sentence or something like that. And um, they didn't have a problem with the sentence, but they told, but, but the editor said to me, the problem is we've spoken to the foreign desk and there is no country called Palestine. So we're going to have to change it to the Middle East. Now, this was just before George W. Bush began to use the word Palestine, after which the New York Times found it legitimate. And so now references to Palestine are ubiquitous in the New York Times. But back then, it was racy, it was daring, it was subversive. Um, so, um, but the idea to actually write this biography um, began after I published a piece in 2017 about Franz Fanon's life with a particular focus on his psychiatric writings, mm -hmm. which had just been published by uh, the scholars Jean Calfa um, and uh, Robert Young. Um, and those writings were a revelation because they opened the window onto Fanon's psychiatric practice and the way he approached therapy and the ways in which his approach to therapy was intertwined with his anti-colonial politics. So I wrote that piece and um, <clears throat> I began to feel that I had more to say 
about Fanon, his ideas, his life. And a friend of mine, uh, the writer Pankaj Mishra, after reading the piece, um, said to me, you know, I think there's a, there's a book here, Adam. You might want to consider pursuing a book. And so that's that's really what got me thinking about about writing this book. And I I I, I admire David Macy's biography. It's a it's a it's a very impressive work of scholarship. I also think there's great value in the book um, uh, written by uh, Fanon's intern in Algeria, Alice Cherki who's an Algerian Jewish psychoanalyst who has lived in France for many years. Um, but I didn't think that either book quite captured the passion of Franz Fanon and also the tragic dimensions mm -hmm. of his life. Because, you know, Fanon is an inspiring figure in many ways, but his life is also a confrontation with the impossibility of some of his dreams. And I, I, I didn't feel that was adequately conveyed. I felt that there was much more uh, to say. And, and, I, and I also wanted to, produ to produce a book that would be compelling to people who have no knowledge of Fanon. I mean, both books are great for Fanon scholars. And that, you know, as, as you pointed out, there is a resurgence of interest in Fanon. And there's always been a kind of um, Fanon cult. I mean, there are people who, you know, think of him as you know almost a prophet um but what about people who may not know that they should be interested in Fanon what about people who aren't aware of how important he is to thinking about race or mental health or anti-colonial struggle or what have you I wanted to write a book that would speak to those people as well and one of the things which really comes comes through very powerfully in in the book and and it's a beautifully written narrative which i think uh you know it, it speaks to uh an attempt to reach out to that audience but it really situates fanon within um you know within a broader context in other words you pay careful attention not just to his ideas but also to what he was doing at the time the the, the political environment who he was you know working with and working against and then also as you mentioned a few moments ago um the dialogues he was having with other intellectuals, African intellectuals, French intellectuals, kind of putting him into a context of saying, look, this is not just a prophet putting out a pamphlet uh, from on high, but rather someone engaged in really high stakes um, political and intellectual debates. No, it's true. I mean, you know, when we sit down to write, we're alone, but we never really think alone. We're always thinking in dialogue with other people and, and you know, Fanon was no exception. And I think there is a tendency in some of the writing on Fanon to see him as this entirely self-made man, as this, this genius who was coming up with ideas that no one had ever, you know, imagined before. And I don't want to understate the originality of Fanon, but, you know, Fanon was a bricoleur you know, he took ideas that were out there and he weaved them into um, a kind of radiant and powerful synthesis. But, you know, Fanon is a, he is a child of movements like Negritude, you know, which is a mm -hmm. philosophy of black consciousness that was developed in different, somewhat different directions by um, Leopold Sédar Senghor, the uh, Senegalese mm -hmm. uh, poet and statesman, Aimé Césaire, the great Martinican poet and politician who was 
an early mentor of Fanon, um, and Léon Gontran Damas, um, uh, another great West Indian poet whose voice I detect in, in, in Fanon too, because he was very sharp and sarcastic. And, and those, those three men uh, forged uh, the philosophy of black consciousness of negritude in Paris in the 1930s. I should add, there were women involved too. Um, there were um, uh, uh, there 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 were there was a, there were there were sisters uh, a group of sisters in Paris whose name I'm sorry I'm I'm forgetting at this moment who were very involved too as kind of salonnières in Paris at the same time um, and there was also someone I write about extensively in this book Suzanne Césaire the the wife of Aimé Césaire who was a brilliant writer and uh, whose work uh, unfortunately, it was in many ways overshadowed uh, by that of her husband. And as I argue in the book, in some ways, Suzanne Césaire was even anticipated Fanon's work even more than than Aimé, her husband. Um, so neg there's negritude, and mm -hmm. Fanon has a very complicated relationship to negritude. On the one hand, he owed he owed a great deal to negritude because he had grown up thinking essentially that he was white, except for his black skin, that he was just a French person. This was actually quite common among West Indians of his generation. What, what, what was the first thing that they learned to say when they grew up? The first thing, the first thing they learned to say in French, it's je suis Francais. You know, it is, they learned that they were the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, descendants of the Gauls. Um, they did not think of themselves as African. The, the, the uh, Blacks, or as they would say, les Negres, those were the Africans. So when Fanon was young, um, he was taught that Blacks were the African soldiers who were stationed um, in, in Martinique, the so-called tireurs Senegalais, the, 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 the Senegalese riflemen. Mm -hmm. and, and to Fanon, they were quite exotic and even at first frightening. So he wasn't Black. And of course, he has eventually this shattering realization that in the eyes of the French, in fact, he is black. Mm -hmm. um, he is not merely a Frenchman of color. And, um, and negritude um, provided a very important tool for him in understanding his blackness. But at a certain point, he rejects black consciousness. Um, or I should say, he rejects the idea that black consciousness is the destination. There has to be a larger vision. It's a necessary rite of passage. And so, you know, he also connects to the phenomenology of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, whose classes he's taking in Lyon while he's studying um, psychiatry. He's reading Jean-Paul Sartre in um, Les Temps Modernes, where he also discovers the writing of Richard Wright and Chester mm -hmm. Himes. And in many ways, Fanon has a kind of envious admiration of Black American writers. Who are writing about race in much more extroverted, defiant ways than French black writers. Um, he even flirts with the idea of writing uh, a monograph of Richard Wright and sends him a letter saying that he would love to talk to him about, about his books. The letter, he never receives a reply, but that is an impulse of mm -hmm. his that I think, you know, we have to take seriously. Um, and, you know, and eventually, you know, Fanon is in dialogue with a great number of other thinkers and activists. That's how his thinking takes shape, along with, of course, the impact 
of the situations that he is involved in. When I say situations, I mean it in the sense, in the Sartrean sense of political predicaments. Sartre spoke of extreme situations like the occupation of Paris by the Nazis. For Fanon, these extreme situations would be found in Algeria because it's in late 1953 that he becomes the director of the, uh, the Blida-Joinville Psychiatric Hospital um, just outside of Algiers. And it's less than a year later that the Algerian revolt breaks out. November 1st, 1954, historic date in Algerian history, also in French history. And by then, you know, Fanon has been observing with great interest the colonial situation. He's working with about 200 European women and about 200 Algerian men. And he is drawing connections between the suffering of the particular suffering of his Algerian patients and the colonial context. And at the same time, and this is, I think, is a, it's a very interesting detail, Banan is developing um, connections with a circle of radical Christians. These are European Christians, mostly based in Algiers, grouped around uh, the classical scholar Andre Mandouz, great classical scholar, who had been involved in the French resistance, who had published a journal called Témoignage Chrétien, a Christian witness, and who, once he came to Algeria, immediately sympathized with the Muslim majority and understood the longings for independence and freedom. And it's through people like André Mandouz and the doctor Pierre Cholet, a young doctor who you know, was an early member of the FLN, that Fanon becomes aware of the intellectual milieu of the independence struggle. And it's through those people that he makes his first contacts with the FLN. As it happens, the same radical Christian circles um, were in, um, in France um, published Fanon's early work. Fanon published his first pieces in a journal called Esprit, which was a tribune of the Catholic left, hmm. not notable, Présence Africaine, which was the Negritude journal of Aimé Césaire and Sangor. No, Fanon chose to publish in Esprit. That's where he first published his um, essay um, on the, uh, the, the lived experience of the Black men, L'Experience Vécu du Noir, which became um, one of the central chapters of Black Skin, White Masks. It's also where he published an essay that in some ways I think is, um, in some ways it's even more important to understanding Fanon's eventual trajectory, um, an essay called the, so the, the North African Syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that is based on his, um, his psychiatric work, his medical work with um, Algerian laborers in Paris who um, uh, described uh, uh, ailments that could, be not, that could not be linked to a lesion. French doctors, had described this as the North African syndrome and had basically written it off as a pathology of, of North Africans, or for that matter, as a pretext not to go to work. They were, you know, they they were they were indolent, and so they would prefer to claim to be sick than to show up at their jobs. And Fanon, um, what Fanon read was psychological distress. I mean, he saw this psychosomatic complex um, as connected to their status in France. This is long before he becomes involved in the mm -hmm. independence struggle. Um, and that's where he published the essay in Esprit. Now, 
I wanted to I want to go back and uh, kind of talk about the ideas in Black Skin, White Masks. But since you bring it up and since it is the title of the book, um, you, you place a lot of emphasis, as does quite a bit of the recent scholarship on the psychiatric clinic and on kind of the dual life that Fanon is leading um, as he's on the one hand writing these essays and engaging in, in philosophical discussions, but he's also actually running and experimenting and developing psychiatric practice um, you know, in France, of course, but then most importantly, uh, in Algeria, talk about that a little bit and how you see the connection between his psychological practice or psychology practice and his theorizations. Sure. I mean, they're, they are, they, they run on parallel tracks and they also produce, um, interesting points of tension. Um, the reason that I make so much of his psychiatric practice is first of all, that, um, that's what Franz Fanon spent most of his time doing. I mean, even when he was in Tunis serving as the spokesman of the GPRA, the, um, the uh, provisional government in exile, the Algerian Republic, um, he spent most of his time working as a doctor. Um, and he was not, and of course he was seeing uh, Algerian soldiers um, stationed um, in, um, in Morocco and Tunisia and providing them care. Um, but he was also seeing a wide range of patients. Not all of them uh, were Algerian. Not all of them were even Muslim. He had many patients who were, who were European and also um, patients who were, um, were Tunisian and Algerian Jews. Um, and so I, I, I think it, you know, one would be remiss to ignore that. That, that profoundly shaped um, his thinking. And you see that um, in the work because, you know, Fanon's approach to politics is that of a psychiatrist. Um, he had a um, uh, he had piercing insights into what I'm loosely calling the the dream life or the dream world of race and colonialism. He's interested in how people live um, their experiences, both of of oppression and of persecution. I mean, because he's also very interested in how the perpetrators and persecutors of colonialism experience their lives, their inner lives. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason that the, the notion of lived experience, le vécu, which he gets from phenomenology plays such an important role, both in black skin, white masks and in, and in works like uh, dying colonialism and the wretched of the earth. It's another, it's a reason why Fanon writes so much about dreams. I mean, for example, in The Wretched of the Earth, he writes about the aggressive and muscular dreams of subjugated peoples. You know, what they do when they're asleep, um, you know, how their desires for rebellion, freedom, and independence are, which have been suppressed in actual life, are channeled into their imaginary life, into their dream life. Um, so you, you can't ignore that. It's, it's, I think, central to his work. At the same time, what's really fascinating about Fanon is that he politicizes psychiatry. Mm -hmm. You know, Fanon became aware early on, I mean, I, I believe that it really first took place in Lyon when he encountered the racism of the medical establishment. Um, but that perception, I think, is further sharpened once he gets to Algeria and discovers the impact um, of the uh, Algerian French uh, psychiatrist Antoine Poirot, um, he becomes aware of 
the ways in which traditional French psychiatry had absorbed colonial prejudices about um, the about the Algerian psyche, about Algerians' capacity for self-governance. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Antoine Poirot, um, you know, had written about the you know the limited cortex uh, capacity um, of Algerians. He um, was at, on the one hand a reform a, a psychiatric reformer and on the other hand he was a scientific racist and and so Fanon realized that um, he not only wanted to practice psychiatry with his patients but he wanted to transform the practice of psychiatry mm -hmm. and so you know much of his work is also a critique of psychiatry I think this is one reason why uh, Fanon's work would eventually become so attractive uh, to groups like the Black Panthers. You know, the uh, uh, to 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 be Black American in a sense is to be aware of medical malpractice. I mean, just think of things like the Tuskegee experiments. American medicine American medicine was saturated with racism, and so when the Black Panthers began to establish these 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 free healthcare clinics for people in places like Oakland. They were reading Fanon on medicine and colonialism. They were thinking about his ideas and trying to apply them. I mean, we have this, I think, rather complacent, um, if not prejudicial notion that for the Black Panthers, Fanon simply meant armed struggle, violence, you know, give me a gun, let me shoot some pigs. But no, the, 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 the Panthers were interested in his ideas about medicine and colonialism. So um, you can't separate the psychiatry and the politics. What's more, you know, Fanon, as a psychiatrist, was very interested not only in the collective liberation of groups like the Algerian colonized, he was actually committed to personal, individual decolonization, individual freedom. I mean, this is one of the most attractive and powerful aspects of Fanon's writing. I mean, a lot of left-wing thought is somewhat indifferent to the question of personal liberation? What does it mean for an individual to be free? In fact, there's even arguably something of a prejudice against a prejudice toward the idea of individual liberation on parts of the left, not all of the left, obviously. But there's a strain within Marxism, which looks askance at individual liberation and sees it as a kind of, um, you know, as a kind of bourgeois ideology. Um, Fanon was in no way, of course, um, a conventional liberal. But he did believe strongly in the emancipation in, of, the, of the individual, what he called disalienation, the individual becoming aware of his or her capacities for taking action, for having an impact on the world, um, for, you know, what the existentialists would have called negation, you know. Um, I want to underline, though, that there are interesting tensions between the psychiatry and the politics, because on the one hand, Fanon believes that uh, uh, that violence can be a kind of shock therapy. Mm -hmm. Violence can can shatter the um, sedimented uh, feelings of powerlessness, lethargy, futility, and despair on the part of the colonized. He makes a very strong argument for this in the opening chapter of the wretched of the earth, which unfortunately is often read as if it were the key to understanding all of Fanon's work. It's not, it's a chapter. 
But he clearly believed this. He felt that somehow that armed struggle would jolt the colonized out of this out of these um, feelings of despair. Um, but Fanon was also a healer, you know, and so you know, and Fanon wrote in the final chapter of the Wretch of the Earth about all of the deleterious psychoaffective symptoms that resulted from an engagement in armed struggle, not just for people who had suffered torture and repression on the part of the French, but also for people who had taken part in the armed struggle and had conflicted feelings about what they had done. You know, he spoke to, for example, an Algerian soldier who had stabbed to death a French woman and, and had nightmares about her. So Fanon is aware as a psychiatrist that violence actually is a double-edged sword. So, you know, he's a soldier and he's a healer. And these two things, you know, they operate in tandem, but there are also conflicts between them. All right. We've been speaking to Adam Schatz about his book, The Rebels Clinic. When we come back, we're going to talk about Algeria, colonialism, decolonization, violence, and the core of Fanon's thought. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast, and we're back with Adam Schatz, author of the new book, The Rebels Clinic. Um, and Adam, when we left off, uh, you were talking about Fanon's theories of violence and uh, and how that you know intersected with the psychiatric practice. I think for many people, um, their initial encounter and their most dominant encounter with Fanon is probably his, you know, advocacy of of armed struggle and uh, you know, kind of the 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 radicalism of of his approach to violence. I mean, we all we all remember on October seventh with the with Hamas in Israel, how there was this, you know, kind of outburst of people talking about that. So let's go into that a little bit more and what you think Fanon really was trying to say. What did he think when he was talking about violence, armed struggle, um, redemption, the, these concepts? Um, how do you approach that in the book? And what do you think people are perhaps misunderstanding? Well, it's a very, very difficult question. And there is no, there's, there's no doubt that Fanon was an advocate of armed struggle. Um, and part of this, you know, had to do, as I suggest in the book, with his understanding of what had happened um, in the West Indies. Um, uh, Fanon was very ambivalent um, about uh, the 1848 um, abolition, the way that the abolition of slavery had taken place in 1848 um, in Martinique. I mean, he grew up, he grew up in a, in a, on a small island where he was raised to worship the liberal abolitionist, uh, Victor Schelcher, um, who was ubiquitous, um, on the island. The, the, the library was named after him. There was an enormous statue of him. And so he was essentially taught that he should be grateful to this white man, um, for, the quote unquote freedom that he and other black Martinicans enjoyed, even though the conditions on the island were, were, were not particularly attractive and, and power was still disproportionately held by the white Beques, the uh, descendants of the whites who had been slave owners. And he looked with a certain, with a kind of envy uh, at the example of Haiti 
uh, where uh, black people had, uh, under the leadership of Toussaint Louverture, had fought for their freedom. And, and Fanon was, a, in many ways, a Hegelian. I mean, he believed that he, he was a reader of the, uh, that classic essay by Hegel, the, on the Lord and the Bondsman. Um, he believed that freedom was something that could not be granted. It had to be won, and it had to be won in some kind of struggle. So his thinking about violence is shaped by West Indian history, by his reading of, reading of Hegel, and particularly, I think, um, by the interpretation of Hegel that had been um, advanced by the Russian emigre thinker Alexandre Kojev, who gave these lectures in Paris in the 1930s and who became you know, a very important figure and influenced people like Simone de Beauvoir. So there is an intellectual foundation to his understanding of the relationship between violence, freedom, and self-mastery. Um, but the attraction to violence or the belief that violence is necessary to, uh, to freedom is not simply an abstract affair. It's also very much shaped by what Fanon observes when he's in Algeria. Because, you know, we have to remember, first of all, that France uh, took possession of Algeria in 1830, between 1830 and 1848, when Algeria was, was annexed and, and uh, transformed into three departments of, of metropolitan France. Um, we have to remember that that colonization of Algeria was extremely violent. About a third of the Algerian population between 1830 and the 1870s perished of violence, of disease. There were uh, brutal raids known as enfumades, where Algerian families who had taken shelter in caves were smoked out. Uh, uh, French soldiers would light fires next to these caves and asphyxiate the people who lived inside them. So, you know, for Fanon, uh, and, and there had been subsequent, you know, revolts, you know, that were repressed with pitiless force uh, by the French. There was a great revolt by a Berber leader named Mokrani in uh, the early 1870s. And the French responded by confiscating uh, the vast majority of the lands in, in, in Kabylie. Um, so we, you know, we have to remember that, that, um, that for Fanon, the, uh, the violence of the colonized is a counter-violence, right? The original violence was carried out by the colonizer. Otherwise, they would not have taken possession of Algeria. Now, and it is it's probably important to highlight here for those who don't pay attention to Algeria that this is actually a pure form of settler colonialism. I and mean, this is actually the large scale um, population of Algeria by, by people from France um, as part of the transformative project. And this, and this, it's the purest form you can get, really, because by the time French Algeria matures, you know, um, and becomes three departments of France, you have a population of nine to 10 million people, a million of whom are European settlers um, who have arrived in Algeria from, not just from France, France was actually a minority contributor to the, the, the European population, but from Corsica, from Malta, from Italy, from Spain. And uh, these um, uh, Europeans enjoy um, an extensive array of privileges, even those 
who are the so-called les petits blancs, you know, the, the down at heel whites. Um, most whites in Algeria were not grand colons. They didn't have, you know, big uh, vineyards and, and um, uh, they were, you know, working class and middle class and lower middle class people, but they were still above the natives, the so-called indigène. And so um, when the rebellion breaks out in November, 1954, the French respond with furious repression. And in a sense, they are resuming the repression that they had begun in 1945, 1945 um, after V-Day, when, when Algerian protesters raised the Algerian flag, a number of Europeans were killed and the French responded by carrying out a massacre of over 10,000 people the so-called Saitif and Guama massacre. So, you know, it is important to contextualize Fanon's advocacy of violence in this situation of a very violent uh, uh, settler colonialism. Now, what did he actually propose? It's, it's, um, it's a complicated question because it's not always easy to, to, to distinguish Fanon's diagnosis from his prescription, you know, mm -hmm. because for much of the time, in that classic essay on violence, which was originally published in Les Temps Modernes and then became the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth, he's talking about um, the phenomenological experience of violence for the colonized. You know, the colonized had felt subjugated, humiliated, oppressed, and when they rise up, one, they begin to feel some sense of power and agency. And, um, and two, you know, they respond with what he calls the almost physiological brutality that centuries of oppression have nourished and given rise to. Now, um, <clears throat> I believe this is a diagnosis, not a prescription. I'm not saying that he's against violence. He is for armed struggle, but he also... Um, uh, is critical of that physiological brutality in, um, he said, we condemn with heavy hearts the atrocities committed by the FLN. He writes this in, in, in A Dying Colonialism. He also um, writes that hatred and revenge cannot provide a program uh, for national liberation. You know, because Fanon had such close ties with figures like Pierre Cholet, you know, who was a European, who was a Frenchman, and who was an early member of the FLN, he understood as he you know, writes in The Wretched of the Earth that sometimes uh, whites can be blacker than the so-called natives. And in fact, the members of the native community can be uh, allies of the colonial power. I mean, and, and it was his hope that in the course of an anti-colonial struggle, um, it could be based on, on principles and ideals, not merely on belonging to a particular communal group, not merely on ethnicity um, or religion. That clearly troubled him. Um, on the other hand, as a psychologist, he understood the feelings of vengeance. He understood the messiness of, of human emotion. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote that, you know, the, the colonized man is a victim who constantly dreams of becoming a persecutor. You know, he, you know, there is, there is an understanding of the darker impulses that oppression gives rise to. So I think that, you know, we have to conclude that, that he, is a, he is a champion of armed struggle, but he is more ambivalent about some of the forms that it 
inspires. What would he have said about October 7? Who knows? I suspect that Fanon may have classed it among those acts of quote unquote, almost physiological brutality that centuries of oppression uh, give rise to. Um, does that mean he would have condemned it? It's hard to say. And I suspect that given his fierce identification with the colonized, he probably would not have said anything. You know, I think that he had um, a kind of tragic understanding of what happens in the minds of people who have known little more than poverty, humiliation, and force. You know, he writes that for the, for the, for the colonizer, um, the colonizer imagines that violence is the only language that the colonized understand. And the colonized respond by saying, well, we think actually it's the colonizer who only understands the language of violence. He was a political and historical and psychological thinker. He was not a moralist. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something I think that troubles people. There is a coldness to Fanon. And sometimes it's unclear, is he endorsing the violence that he's writing about? Or is he merely analyzing it? Um, obviously, his, his readers um, in national liberation movements have read him as, you know, as an ally and as a proponent of, you know, of these kinds of of these forms of violence. Um, I think when you read, when you become acquainted with Fanon the man and Fanon's personal experience of violence, it it's it's harder to make a judgment because he was clearly someone who was troubled by some of the violence that he had observed in Algeria, obviously the violence of the French, but also some of the violence that he had seen on the part of, of Algerians. I mean, there are some very poignant anecdotes in that chapter that I mentioned, mental uh, colonial war and mental disorders, where you can tell that he is utterly distraught by um, the kinds of violence that he is uh, witnessing. Um, for example, there is a story in that chapter of two Algerian boys who are 12 or 13 who kill one of their friends. And that friend is a European. And um, these boys had seen terrible suffering on the part of their community. And they felt that their only way of responding was to kill a European, even though this boy was one of their best friends. I don't think that Fanon regarded this as a heroic form of anti-colonial struggle. I think he saw it as part of the horrific collateral damage of colonial war. And that's, a, I think, a really important way of framing all of this. That it, and, and it comes through in, in several of the several passages in your book is that he's not really talking about violence in the abstract. It's deeply connected to his understanding of what colonialism is and what decolonization would actually mean. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit in terms of how he actually thinks about those relationships and the production of, of colonialism, decolonization, blackness, all of those four concepts around which this discussion of violence and armed struggle are, are unfolding. Well, I mean, I think Fanon, Fanon is explicit that for, for people for that in the early stages of an anti-colonial rebellion for the colonized, um, fighting against a colonial system of oppression pretty much amounts to driving the colonizer out. That is the first impulse. Um, and it means that the anti-colonial struggle will for a period 
reproduce and mimic the Manichaeanism mm -hmm. that is uh, essential to the functioning of colonialism itself. Right? Colonialism for Fanon, colonial, settler colonialism for Fanon posits a binary opposition between the settler and the colonized. The settler, no matter the person's economic background, the settler is part of the privileged community, the colonized is part of the oppressed, exploited, subjugated community. And so it's understandable that in responding to this tremendous apparatus of oppression, the colonized uh, says, look, I mean, you know, uh, you need to get out and we're taking over. Uh, and the dream is a replacement. We're going, we, we have been made to feel as if we are strangers in our own homes, but you're the strangers. No one invited you to come here and now it's time for you to leave. Now, Fanon understands this impulse. And, and, and I think in psychological and theoretical terms, he defends it. But he argues as well, he argues that, that under an anti-colonial leadership of vision, intelligence, with an, ide with, a, with an ideology of social transformation, the anti-colonial struggle will transcend the Manichaeanism of colonialism that it that it is that it is lift that the, the Manichaeanism that it is adopted from colonialism itself. And that's when he writes that eventually people will realize that there are allies in the European community. There are allies in the Jewish community. Um, you know, the Algerian Jews had themselves been indigenous. The, the vast majority of Algerian Jews um, uh, were indigenously Algerian. Some, of course, had come from Spain and the, uh, uh, during the Inquisition, and there were some others who were, who were from France, who were settlers, but for the most part, they were indigenous. But in 1870, with the Crémieux Decree, they had been made French, and that had resulted in this, this rift, this chasm between um, the Algerian Muslim community, which remained indigenous, quote unquote, and the Algerian Jewish community. But, but there, were, there were, and much of the Jewish community either sat out the war, you know, kind of played a, a, a essentially adopted a strategy of wait and see. Some became fierce colonialists and uh, even joined the, the terrorist organization, the OAS. But there was a minority of Algerian Jews who sympathized with the rebellion. And, and Fanon knew some of those people. And so, you know, there's a chapter in uh, Dying Colonialism, which was originally published in 59 as year five of the Algerian Revolution. There's a chapter um, addressed to the European minority, um, which also touches on the question of the Jewish minority. And there Fanon writes that, that if you join, you know, the anti-colonial struggle, you are Algerian. Now, I do think that what we've seen in in recent years is a kind of crude primordial uh, decolonization rhetoric, mm -hmm. which sees the identities of colonizer and colonized as fixed and essential identities. That was not Fanon's view. On the one hand, he very much believed that the colonized who had lost their lands, who had lost their status, that, that justice for them was of um, paramount importance. You know, um, I mean, uh, but at the same time, uh, he was not arguing that every single person of colonial stat who is a, a member of the settler community is therefore damned, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, evil, you know, complicit in the system, uh, there were choices that could be made. Remember, you know, Fanon is an existentialist, you know, in many ways, a black existentialist. Um, he believes in Sartre's idea about uh, the burden of freedom. And he believed that people could, um, on the basis of political principle, join a struggle um, that um, would result in a new dispensation in Algeria. He envisioned Algerian nationalism incorrectly, but inspiringly mm -hmm. as a nationalism of the will. You know, there's very little discussion in Fanon of what Algerian nationalism actually was. Right. It was not a nationalism of the will. I mean, but his views were echoed by um, a current within the FLN um, uh, that shared his vision, that actually wanted to create a new society that had that was often um, influenced by socialism and communism. I mean, Fanon's idea of decolonization is not simply that you kick the Europeans out and give the jobs to quote unquote natives. It's not. He was actually quite critical of that notion because in his view, what would result would be a reproduction of um, colonial structures of power with native faces. And this essentially is what happened in a lot of countries in Africa, where in his view, a national bourgeoisie, an often avaricious and predatory elite took the positions of the colonizers, but left unchanged many of the kind of political and economic structures from which ordinary you know, Africans and North Africans suffered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was actually rather bleak minded about what the post-independence would look like, because for him, it was not the kind of de decolonization that he envisioned. That's actually, again, uh, I think a nice transition. And maybe for this last a little bit, we can talk about a little more about Fanon in, in, in the actual political struggles that he was involved with both inside Algeria, but then after he's forced out of Algeria, when he goes down into Francophone West Africa, becomes, uh, you know, kind of a, a roving ambassador for the FLN in a way. But also, you know, kind of thinking about his place within all of this, you know, his global reputation as the voice of the Algerian revolution combined with his actual position within the FLN and, and, and the liberation movement. So why don't we talk about that, like part of his life a little bit and how he's navigating um, these anti-colonial theories um, with his own, you know, kind of observations as he's kind of moving outside of the, the zone of combat, so, so to speak. Fanon arrives in Tunis in early 1957. And in 1958, he has this, you know, extraordinary experience. He goes to the All Africa People's Conference convened by Kwame Nkrumah in Accra. Mm -hmm. And he meets uh, people like the Cameroonian independence leader, Félix Mumier. He meets uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba and forges a friendship with him as well. And he meets uh, Holden Roberto, who was uh, an Angolan uh, leader, um, a very problematic figure who became a CIA asset. And, you know, as I argue in the book, you know, Fanon's political judgment um, was not always on point. Mm -hmm. And I think he very much misjudged the Angolan situation and uh, forged an alliance with Holden Roberto rather than with the, with the, uh, the MPLA, which eventually led Angola to independence. So he has this experience uh, at the All Africa People's Conference where he you know, makes this speech on behalf of armed struggle and essentially 
uh, presents Algeria as the model for the rest of the continent. But you know, this is where Fanon's visionary desires come up against certain inconvenient realities. Um, most, uh, most of the leaders of the independent struggles in Africa did not want to replicate a model that had brought such immense suffering on Algeria. You know, Algeria's war was one of the most destructive wars of decolonization in history. Um, you know, Algeria has often described itself as the land of a million martyrs or the land of a million and a half martyrs. They upped the number. Actually, the number is inflated, um, but hundreds of thousands of Algerians perished in that war, along with about 24,000 um, French soldiers. So when Africans, when, when, when people in West Africa looked at Algeria, they did not see a situation they wanted to import, on the contrary. And so, um, you know, Fanon, as I suggest in this book, Fanon's efforts to um, Algerianize uh, African independence struggles were less than successful. Instead, what happened was that Fanon was Africanized. Fanon began to think of himself as an African. He was very moved by Patrice Lumumba and by Félix Mumier, who was later assassinated by, by French intelligence. Um, later on, he will make this journey, this very daring journey to um, uh, Mali's border with Algeria to create a Southern front for the FLN. It's unsuccessful and yet it stirs these longings um, in Fanon for some connection to this continent from which his, you know, his ancestors um, uh, had, you know, which his ancestors had left to come to, uh, uh, to Martinique. Um, but, you know, Fanon's relationship to these African independent struggles is also very complicated because Fanon's role is to serve as this traveling ambassador, the, the ambassadeur itinerant of, 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 the, of the, the GPRA. He's based in Accra, but he's traveling to various African countries. He's spending time with Sekou Toure of Guinea, whom he very much admired because of Guinea's stance on the French African community. Guinea was the one African country that voted no against de Gaulle's offer. He saw, he saw uh, Sekou Toure as a man of, of principle, a man of great hardness. You know, Fanon had, a, I think, a real envy of people who were tough and hard and and uncompromising. He looked past the fact that Sekou Toure was also a fanatical dictator and a very brutal man. The reason that Fanon's relationship to these African independence struggles was so complicated is that Fanon was serving as a representative of the FLN. He was not a part of these struggles directly. And in some cases, the, um, the needs of the FLN actually conflicted with those of the African independence struggles. And and there's one particularly pointed example, and that is Congo, uh, where his, his friend, uh, Patrice Lumumba, had become prime minister. And uh, uh, Lumumba, not, you know, as soon as Lumumba became prime minister, and just after he made that very powerful and possibly ill-judged speech, critiquing uh, the uh, strategically ill-judged speech, critiquing uh, the, the, the depredations of Belgian mm -hmm. colonialism. 
as soon as he became prime minister, the Belgians, with CIA support, began conspiring to bring him down, working with local allies, eventually his own president, um, Joseph Kasavubu. Fanon obviously sympathized with Patrice Lumumba. He had great regard for him. He saw him as somewhat naive um, and as underestimating the depth of the opposition to, to his power and authority in Congo, but he had immense affection for him. But Fanon was with the FLN, with the GPRA. And so when he went uh, to Congo um, weeks before Lumumba's fall, his um, uh, mission was to represent the FLN to raise support among the delegates at this conference um, in Kinshasa for the FLN at the United Nations. And uh, in the midst of that trip, it's pretty clear, again, the evidence is somewhat sketchy, but it, I think it's fairly clear that Fanon was counseling Lumumba to step down and to become part of an opposition movement. Now, the reason for this <clears throat> is that the FLN had its headquarters in Tunis. It depended for its operations in Algeria on the goodwill of the Tunisian government, on Habib Bourguiba's government. Without that relationship to Bourguiba, the FLN would be in trouble. Bourguiba did not particularly like Lumumba. And the FLN was also at that time trying to ingratiate itself with the Americans. You know, the Americans were, be were understanding that the French presence was doomed in Algeria. And they were afraid that, that uh, Algeria would fall into the hands of the Soviet Union, so into the so Soviet orbit. And so because of the sensitivities of the FLN's relationship to the Americans and the Tunisians, the FLN decided that it would be better to kind of let go of, of Lumumba, not to actively conspire for him to be overthrown, but to encourage him to adopt a different strategy, to step down. And so here we see, you know, a conflict between uh, Fanon's desires for the Congo, for the African continent, and the political objectives and needs of the movement that he served. You know, there, so there's a tension in Fanon's life between his um, rebellious character, you know, that's why I call it the rebels clinic and the requirements of being a bureaucrat in an independent independence movement. He had to be loyal. He really didn't have much of a choice, but it's, I think, uh, one of the more tragic episodes in Lumumba's life. Uh, sorry, in, in Fanon's life. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Um, one last question. Um, and that is about, uh, you know, kind of, the book kind of kicks off with this. And I think a lot of us would, you know, kind of relate to this is the, is the wretched of the earth was this kind of global phenomenon and had this massive impact on, on decolonial struggles, anti-colonial struggles, and kind of broadly speaking, kind of left thinking um, for, for many, many years. And I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit about the circulation of these ideas and kind of, we began this conversation talking about how Fanon was in dialogue and conversation with all of these French intellectuals and African intellectuals and the like. What about after Fanon and the kind of the afterlives of his thinking? And, uh, you know, kind of reflect on that just a little bit as we kind of 
try grapple with the long-term intellectual significance of, of this figure? Well, I think, you know, I think, Mark, that without the, the afterlives, which are the subject of the epilogue of this book, mm-hmm. there would be no book. There would be no great interest in Fanon. He would, he, would be, he would be merely a kind of, you know, a fascinating but minor character in the history of the Algerian independence struggle. It's because of the writing and because of the enormous impact that it had after his death that we're still thinking about him. That's the legacy, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fanon's, uh, the interest in Fanon's work has gone through a variety of stages. Um, you know, in the, <clears throat> in the uh, mid-late 1960s, Fanon was being read in revolutionary training camps. He was being read by Palestinians like Abu Iyad, Salah Khalaf, who was eventually assassinated by the Israelis, was a, um, a right-hand man of Yasser Arafat. He was read by... Latin American revolutionaries. The first translation of The Wretched of the Earth was arranged by Che Guevara. Uh, He was read, as I mentioned earlier, by the Black Panthers who held up uh, The Wretched of the Earth as, you know, a Bible, you know, for um, the Black struggle. Um, So there's a period in the 60s and 70s when these liberation struggles are ongoing. uh, When Fanon is read, I think, mostly for this... um, uh, for his um, uh, for his advocacy of, of of armed struggle, although you know, as I mentioned earlier, the work was also put to different uses by the Black Panthers and their healthcare clinics. At a certain point, um, Fanon gets rediscovered um, by academics and uh, largely in post-colonial studies and also in Black studies who never abandoned Fanon. I mean, you could actually make a, a good argument, and I think I sort of make this argument, that um, that Fanon died in America, right? He died in Bethesda, Maryland, and he, was, and he was resurrected in America. He was resurrected by the Black Panthers, read by Black psychiatrists who were, you know, interested in questions of stigma and psychological harm. I mean, Black Skin, White Masks was very important to Black American psychiatrists in the 1970s. Now, but in the 80s, there, there's a revival of interest in Fanon on the part of um, academics um, in post-colonial studies and, and Black studies. And, uh, and what emerges is something that Henry Louis Gates has called uh, critical Fanonism. And, 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 you know, there's an important body of work there um, that, you know, one associates with thinkers like Homi Baba and Stuart Hall and so forth. But often the Fanon who is presented in that work is, is very much a decontextualized Fanon. Um, there is, on the one hand, the work is approached as philosophy and poured over. And there are these learned exegeses of, you know, of every little last sentence in Fanon's work. On the other hand, Fanon remains a kind of... Um, you know, an empty vessel, and and the the uh, the suggestion is that um, well, Fanon is often linked in the work of critical Fanonism to thinkers who were far less important to him than the thinkers who actually influenced him. So one would read essays on Fanon and Jacques Lacan, whom he read, but who was not a great influence on him, rather than Fanon and the Spanish Catalan uh, psychiatrist François Tosquelles who had a real influence mm-hmm. on Fanon. You'd read about Fanon and Foucault, but not Fanon and Sartre, even though the Fanon-Sartre dialogue is critical to understanding the development of Fanon's ideas. So then later, you know, Fanon um, travels into a whole other set 
of academic disciplines, notably indigenous studies. There's a book about Fanon and Native Americans that I think had quite a quite an impact. Um, I think it's called uh, uh, Red Skin, White Masks. And in more recent years, um, uh, Fanon starts to get invoked by uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, again by Palestinian um, intellectuals and pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Um, he's also uh, very influential in uh, the field of psychiatry. There are radical psychiatrists who have found um, great inspiration in his work. Radical psychiatrists in Italy who are working with refugees and also Palestinian and Israeli psychiatrists who are interested in questions of war trauma and who have um, made great use of that last chapter in the Wretched of the Earth, um, uh, Colonial War and Mental Disorders. So, you know, Fanon's work, I think, um, remains, you know, very pertinent. And it's, it's you know, it, you know, the, the interesting thing about Fanon is that he wrote these books or rather had them dictated these books because he never actually sat down and wrote them. And that's a, another aspect of the book, you know, his relationship to his, the woman uh, uh, who took dictation, Marie-Jeanne Manuelon, whom I knew in her last years. But, you know, he, he dictates the, these books as acts of intervention, as, as, as essentially as propaganda. But Fanon, in spite of his own intentions, is never merely a crude propagandist. He's too, he's too brilliant for that. So the works, you know, function as propaganda, perhaps, you know, they certainly did in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s. People are reading them as kind of incitements to radical action. I mean, you know, you can read Albert Memmi, a great thinker on colonialism, but it's not going to turn you into a revolutionary. Fanon, I think, inspired a lot of people to become activists and revolutionaries. And yet the work is richer than a mere political manifesto than a work of propaganda. There are complexities and tensions and contradictions that I think, um, you know, uh, that make his work resonant. I mean, we'll always have versions of vulgar fanonism, just as we'll always have versions of vulgar Marxism. And perhaps that's what we need in activism. We need vulgar versions of complex thinkers. But I think for those who really reckon with what Fanon wrote, um, it's um, it's a body of work that continues to intrigue and in some cases confound. Well, this has been really fascinating. Uh, I want to thank Adam Schatz for joining us to talk about his new book, The Rebels Clinic, Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Let it